KZSU-FM Stanford, welcome to another edition of Hearsay Culture. My name is Dave Levine. I'm an associate professor at Elon University School of Law, an affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, uh, and just finishing up a visitorship at Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy. Uh, today, I am excited to have on uh, someone who, I, who is a friend, but more importantly, for purposes of hearsay culture, an author of the book that recently came out, Commercializing Childhood, Children's Magazine's Urban Gentility and the Ideal of the Child Consumer in the United States, 1823 to 1918. Uh, the guest is Professor Paul Ringel, uh, who's an associate professor of history at High Point University. So hearsay culture listeners... I uh, probably won't wonder why I might have Paul on the show. Now, I've not made Hearsay Culture into a vanity project where I invite my friends on <laughs> to talk about things they're interested in. Uh, and so I've, I've resisted going that route. But rather, Paul's book, uh, I think, is an interesting parallel to the issues involving marketing commercialization that we've touched on on Hearsay Culture fairly regularly over the past 10 years. One of the threads uh, that the show has had, going back really to its inception, uh, has been bringing on trademark scholars to talk about their work, trademark law being that fourth branch, if you will, of IP that operates in a different sphere than copyrights, patents, and trade secrets, in that it focuses much more on the interests of consumers as opposed to incentivizing the creation of new works. Trademarks, of course, overlap heavily with what we think about as information policy, and so therefore I've been interested over the last 10 years in having guests on the show who can talk about marketing from a broader perspective than merely what the best advertisement looks like or how best to get eyeballs into ads, although that's also a very important area in technology. So in Commercializing Childhood, uh, Paul has written a book where he looks at the history of early children's magazines. Uh, and these magazines, uh, one of which, uh, a cover of which I believe is reproduced um, on the cover of the book, uh, were aimed, not surprisingly, given that we're talking about the first, yeah, the, the middle, uh, if you will, uh, heavily of the 19th century, aimed at wealthy uh, individuals who had the capacity to purchase magazines. But through the process of sharing information with children as well as, as, well as ultimately marketing to them, the issues that were around these magazines crossed well beyond the what I think is interesting area of how the content itself was offered to children into these broader questions of society and class and access to information and mobility. And so infused in this history is a very, I think, important and interesting thread associated with how marketing commercialization uh, can ultimately impact one's position within a society and from a content production perspective, the goals and aspirations of entities like these magazines that were marketing for the first time to children uh, who had heretofore really been, and we'll talk more to Paul about that, uh, really divorced from uh, even the early commercial markets that existed uh, in the post-revolutionary war America. So in commercializing childhood, we have a history. Now, Paul is, in fact, a Boston College Law School graduate. So he is a JD. However, he went awry <laughs> and wound up getting a PhD after he got his JD uh, from Brandeis University. And so he is first, and perhaps he would say only, uh, 
a historian. This is a history, and so I am not going to be talking about trademark law with Paul, but rather I'm going to dig into this history and, and I think bring it up to uh, speed uh, for current uh, issues regarding marketing and how children uh, access information today. Uh, so as I mentioned, Paul is an associate professor of history at High Point University, uh, which is in a city, for those of you not familiar with Central North Carolina, that is adjacent to Greensboro, where I live and where I teach. Uh, he's born in Boston. He graduated from Princeton, BC Law, PhD from Brandeis. Uh, this is his first book. Uh, and uh, he is someone who uh, I have uh, gotten to know over the last several years here in Greensboro uh, and in enjoyed reading his book. And I can say honestly, although it sounds hokey, um, I probably would have read this book anyway, uh, but it was terrific for hearsay culture. Uh, we are recording this show on June 6, 2016, uh, actually in my living room uh, in Greensboro, having decided not to ensconce uh, Paul in my basement studio uh, and instead to get us a little bit more open uh, and a little bit, I think, ultimately better acoustics. So, Paul, thank you for taking a long trek over here to Greensboro uh, and uh, for joining me today on Hearsay Culture. Thanks for having me, Dave. I'm really excited to be here. So, I, you know, I know all this, um, but uh, for my listeners who aren't familiar with you, uh, why don't you tell me a bit more about your background and the genesis of this book? Sure. So uh, I grew up in suburban Boston thinking that I was going to be either a center fielder for the Red Sox or a journalist. And limited athletic genes killed the first idea very quickly. And, and writing for some of the college newspapers at Princeton kind of disabused me of the excitement of the second. So I, I uh, sort of drifted into law school, not really sure what I want to do and love the academic challenge of it. But uh, not so much the actual practice of it. And so I went back and got my PhD at Brandeis. And this book came out of not only my dissertation, but actually at Brandeis, we have to do a, a first year independent research article. And it sort of indirectly came out of that. I, I didn't have any sort of preconception that this was what I wanted to write about. In fact, I had a, a very different idea in mind. I was going to write a piece about a guy named John Hay, who some of your listeners may know. He was uh, one of Abraham Lincoln's two personal secretaries as a young man during the Civil War. And then he was Teddy Roosevelt's Secretary of State uh, at the end of his life during the Spanish-American War, which I thought was a really interesting way to bookend the last third of the 19th century. So there's a John Hay Library at Brown. Mm -hmm. And I went down there looking for stuff. I was at that day, I was looking for stuff on the Spanish-American War. And the archivist at Brown was really kind and took me back into the stacks and was looking at stuff with me. And she just sort of happened to pull down and say, hey, look at this. Um, and it was a book by a guy named Edward Stratemeyer, who I had never heard of, um, called Under Dewey at Manila. And it was a boys, bit, a boys book, you know, think like a Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew kind of book directed at boys, um, about a boy who stowed away on one of Dewey's ships as the fl flotilla went out to the Philippines during the Spanish-American War. And I said, oh, that, that's kind of interesting and pulled it down and peeked at it a little bit. And when I got home, I started doing a little more research into that book and found out it was part of a series um, of six books that were written about uh, boys uh, during the Spanish-American War. And then Stratemeyer went on to do these other books about the sort of foreign policy at the time, boys in the Boxer Rebellion, boys in the <laughs> Russo-Japanese War of 1905. And I thought, wow, this is really weird and interesting. Um, the way he's sort of bringing current political and international events and trying to explain it to to boys, 
Um, and then I found out that Stratemeyer, this was early in his career, 1898 to 1905 or 1907. He later, you know, I said the Hardy Boys advisedly because he later created what people have called a fiction factory where he uh, got other people to write for him under various pseudonyms, very famous series, including the Bobsy Twins and the Hardy Boys mm. and Nancy Drew. And so he was, a, he was a pretty major player in children's literature who I had never heard of. Mm -hmm. And that got me interested in this whole idea of, well, how are our children, you know, how is children's literature produced during this time period? And I wrote my piece on Stratemeyer's um, books, and, and it was okay, and it's still sitting in my inbox to, to be developed into something bigger. But I, I kind of quickly came up with the limitation that, you know, what Stratemeyer did was interesting, but I wasn't sure how much of a larger perspective I could take on the work of one author. And then I started digging in a little more and discovered that uh, there were these children's magazines, which I had never heard of, but were some of the biggest selling magazines in the country at the time. In fact, one of the books, one of the magazines I write about in this book, The Youth Companion, for a while was the largest selling magazine of any kind in the country. They had a half million uh, circulation a week and pretty much every major author that you can think of for adults or children was writing for either the Youth Companion and or another magazine called St. Nicholas, um, which came, which was, the circulation wasn't as high, but it had a kind of a more elite audience. It was a more expensive magazine. So some of the obvious people like Rudyard Kipling, Teddy Roosevelt, Louisa May Alcott, Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz, but also people like William James and, and President Wilson and President Taft. In fact, I think I say in the book uh, that at one point, the only major author that I could think of from this time period who didn't write for these magazines was Henry James. So um, this becomes this really sort of mass way vehicle for, for children to gain information about the world around them. And I like the idea of focusing on magazines rather than books because they had to be coming out every week or every month. And so there was much more sort of constant contact with the culture around them. And so I thought I was going to write about this kind of late 19th, early 20th century period uh, and focus on St. Nicholas and the Youth Companion, which I do in the second half of the book. Uh, but one of the things I, I quickly found out, and tell me if this is too long, but, but one of the things I quickly found out is you can't really understand what I really wanted to know was what are the what's the culture that's creating these magazines? You know, on, out of what you know regions, what class, what you know, what's the motivation, and who's got the motivation for creating these magazines? And I found out pretty quickly that you know, the Youth Companion went back all the way to 1827 and actually lasted till 1929, so 102 years. Wow. Um, and I figured out that I couldn't just do the post-Civil War period. I had to go back to that. And so I ended up going all the way back to the 1820s. And what I really focused on was, you know, why did these magazines get created? Mm -hmm. Who is, is marketing these magazines for kids and what's their motivation? And um, what really interested me was the 1820s, 30s, 40s, is a moment when you know, historians understand, and I think they're largely correct, that children are actually being kind of pulled out of the public sphere, pulled out of the marketplace as 
um, dads are leaving the farms and going off to work in, in different capacities. Moms and kids are going into the home and there's a, a larger sense in the culture of the 1820s, 30s, and 40s that access to commercial culture is dangerous for kids. That and yeah, and let, and let me and this is helpful. You know, I, as what I do here, say culture these days, for the most part, I'm recording via Skype. And one of the downsides of recording via Skype is I often don't see the guest as well as I would like. So I do want you to go and I do want to go in that direction because this arc of commercialization is an interesting one. But and I know because you have a JD, you can handle this kind of question, or at least you're familiar with these kinds of questions. Let's define some terms. Okay. All right. So commercialization certainly can be defined a variety of ways. Sure. Um, how are you defining commercialization? Or to put it differently, um, when you think of commercializing, what is what are the activities uh, or actions that you're thinking of? Well, I define commercialization as giving children access to the marketplace mm-hmm. outside of their homes. Mm-hmm. And what activities that can involve changes over the time period that I study. And and at first, um, in the 1820s, the commercialization is really limited to uh, giving children a kind of an excitement by having these magazines sent to the home, usually through the mail, Mm -hmm. in their names. And one of the documents that kind of knocked my socks off is I found uh, the very first, uh, I'm, I'm backtracking a little bit here, but the very first successful children's magazine um, that appeared in the United States was a magazine called The Youth Friend that came out in 1823 and it starts with it's a it's an evangelical magazine that starts in New Haven as part of a, the New Haven American Sunday School Union or the New Haven Sunday School Union and then it goes national a couple of years later it gets starts as the teacher's offering and gets renamed The Youth Friend and I found this newspaper review and the name of the newspaper is escaping me at the moment but there was a newspaper review in 1825 or 26 that talked about how children would get so excited by having a magazine come to the house in their own name that you could motivate them to read the content of the magazine in a way that you couldn't motivate them if you just handed them a book or if you had a minister telling them a sermon or something. This was a way to get children excited. So when I talk about commercialization early on, I'm really just talking about a very limited way of of giving children access to market cultures, usually almost exclusively at the beginning by goods from those market cultures being brought into the home. Now, as you head later into the century and you get older kids who have more access to the world outside their home, especially older boys, and one of the things we can talk about later if you want, is that increasingly these goods get mar- these magazines get marketed to boys who have access to all kinds of different products that aren't necessarily intended for children. Right. Then that, that marketing changes and their access changes and the type of commercialization changes. But, but the basis of it is, you know, what kind of access do these kids get to commercial market products? Were these magazines selling products to children in the sense that there were advertisements like we would see them today? Or was this, was this a different kind of activity? So, for example, uh, you, know, you think about, and this has been, in fact, uh, celebrated in American theater, right? The Wells Fargo Wagon. Right? Mm-hmm. which of course is a song from The Music Man, but the idea that 
the way that, particularly in rural communities, one had access to the outside world was in part by mail order catalogs, mm -hmm. right? And the delivery of goods. We certainly today wouldn't imagine that children, right, were ordering from the Wells, or ordering products that would be delivered by Wells Fargo. But I want to be sure that I'm clear and the listeners are clear about the nature of the commercialization here. So what was the targeting? Was it the content itself that by its nature were selling a magazine? That's commercialization? Or was it more developed than that? It's At first, it's pretty much just this is a commercial product. In fact, at first, it's not even entirely a commercial product because the Youth Friend, the first successful magazine, was actually produced by the American Sunday School Union and um, offered free in a lot of Sunday schools. Now, for the people who could afford it, they had subscriptions and some people were paying for it, but a lot of kids were getting it at Sunday school. I don't know if you remember the, the scene from um, Tom Sawyer where Tom and, and Becky and all the people are sort of trading tickets <laughs> at, at Sunday yeah, school. Yeah. Well, that was actually happening and you know, Twain based that on his experiences as a kid in Missouri before the Civil War. And there were a lot of religious reformers who thought it wasn't such a good idea for these kids to be sort of wheeling and dealing with the tickets. Right. So they, instead of giving them tickets or prizes for attendance, they gave them this magazine. And so at first it was only even, I call it a quasi-commercial product. Mm -hmm. um, there's two magazines that come out soon after, The Use Companion in 27, and actually one that comes out before that called The Juvenile Miscellany in 26, that are wholly commercial in the sense that the, the editors and publishers don't have any subsidies. They have to make all, they have to survive based on subscriptions. But, so at first they're not even entirely commercial, but even when they are with the use companion in the miscellany, there's very, the miscellany has no advertisements. The use companion has very few and then they actually go down to none. Um, and even later on, before the Civil War in the, in the late 1850s, when they bring back advertisements again, those are not advertisements for kids. They're advertisements for sewing machines. They're advertisements for patent medicines. And the advertising is for adults. And honestly, the marketing of the magazine is for adults, too. The, the early editors didn't worry about trying to appeal to kids through the content. They, were, they thought it was enough to appeal to the kids by giving them this commercial product, that the kids would be excited enough about getting something through the mail in their name, that you didn't have to try to appeal to them with what content you had. The right. stuff that we read in here, most kids would, would turn up their noses now and wouldn't want any part of. Um, and there's a quote that I use in the book that I really like. Uh, the original editor of The Use Companion is a guy named Nathaniel Willis, um, some of your listeners, if they know anything or a lot probably about, about 19th century literature, may know his son, Nathaniel Parker Lewis, or his daughter, Fanny Fern. Um, but Willis wasn't nearly as well known as either of his kids. But he wrote a letter to another uh, editor sometime in the early 1840s after he'd been running the companion for a while. And the line that struck me in the letter, letter was he talked about what a pleasure it was to do good to children. Mm. Not good for children, yeah. um, but this was very much a, a unilateral, you know, I'll give you this commercial product, but it's going to say what I want it to say, and you're going to get the message that I want you to get. And it seems like, and, and I, should, I should note here that we are listening, uh, you are listening, 
to KZSU-FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture with uh, Professor Paul Ringel, uh, author of the book Commercializing Childhood. Uh, these folks that were editors right, mm -hmm. uh, were not, uh, if you will, right, average Americans in the sense that they just woke up and decided, well, I'm going to become a magazine editor. You, you use a phrase, uh, which I want you to talk about here, urban gentility, mm -hmm. but really gentility more broadly um, is a word and concept that runs throughout the entire book. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit, and I understand that over the arc of nearly 100 years, the demographics would change. Sure. But as a general matter, who were these folks who were editors of these magazines, and how does this idea of gentility, and more specifically urban gentility, fit into this story? Sure. So uh, the editors early on, for the first probably half of the century that I'm covering, are people who are much more educated than your normal folks, but they're kind of genteel poverty. And there's that word again, but they, yeah. um, they're not prosperous. And they're looking for avenues into what's not really called the middle class yet, but will become the middle class. Um, Two of them, the, there's three editors that I really focus on in the first half of the book. One of them I've already talked about, a guy named Nathaniel Willis, who edits the Use Companion from 1827, its founding, until 1857 when he retires. Uh, the woman who edits the Juvenile Miscellany, her name's Lydia Maria Child. Some of your, um, some of your listeners may know her from a couple of things, um, including... Uh, over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. She, she's a remarkable woman who has, you know, there's people who've written extensive biographies on child and it's fascinating stuff. Um, but for my purposes, she's the editor of the Juvenile Miscellany, uh, an extremely popular but very short-lived, for reasons we can talk about if you want, magazine in Boston that runs from 1826 to, off the top of my head, I think 1834. She's from this working-class family north of Boston, um, a very sort of upwardly mobile family. The brother gets sent to Harvard to be a minister so that he can enter the middle class. There's no opportunity for Lydia, uh, they called her Maria, for Maria to do that. And so she sort of takes this remarkable step of, of trying to write books. Well, women didn't really write books um, in the US, at least not books that were published in the 1820s, but she too is looking for an avenue into the middle class and she takes on this editorship. Um, she's had some success as an as a author. Um, she's written one novel and, and has a second one on the way, but this is a steady paycheck mm -hmm. for her right. and a way to sort of earn enough money so that she can spend some time writing her novels. Um, and the third guy I talked about in the beginning of the book is the second editor of The Use Companion, Daniel Sharp Ford, who takes over, buys the, the paper for, with a partner from, from Willis when he retires in 1857. And Ford runs the miscellany from 57 until 1899, his death. Um, and he too is a working class guy. He actually starts as a printer, um, and, which Willis does too, by the way. So these are blue collar guys. They're artisans, a class that's kind of uh, losing its its traction um, in the United States in the 1820s and 1830s. And so they're looking for avenues into the middle class. And, and being a magazine editor is not a, a steady sort of conservative line of work during this time period. Most magazines and newspapers don't succeed. Um, it starts as kind of a sideline, but in both cases, it, it takes off well enough that they, they make it their primary work. Um, 
And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get into this middle class and the way that they try to do that is by promoting this idea that, that they call sometimes gentility, sometimes respectability. Um, I use the term gentility. Um, and what I mean by that is sort of tied up in what's happening in the United States during this time period, which is a process of urbanization um, of a lot of, of families moving off the farm and out of rural villages into cities that are still quite small, but are growing at a faster rate than they ever have before or since. So for example, Boston, where the story starts, um, grows from a town that, that sort of hits its low population point during the occupation of, of the revolution at about 4,000 people, I think off the top of my head. And within 25 or 30 years, it's grown to a city of 40,000 people, which is still relatively small. But you know, one of the things that I'm, I, when I teach this to my students, I try to get them not to focus on the numbers, but the rate of growth. The, the, these cities are growing so fast that people come in and they're leaving these, these communities where in a lot of cases in, in Massachusetts and New England, their families have been living for generations and everybody not only knows them, but the grandparents of the people uh, who lived there knew their grandparents and, and everybody sort of knows well, if you're, you know, if you're a Willis or if you're a child, we know what that means. Um, into this world of the city where all of a sudden you're spending a lot of time with strangers and you have to sort of figure out who you can trust and, and how to put yourself out there in a way that you can prosper financially and socially. And so gentility is a formula that, that starts in Europe, you know, back in the Middle Ages, but comes to the United States um, with the elites of the revolutionary era. You know, one of the, we talk about the Boston Tea Party. Um, the Tea Party is important because tea was one of the, the most genteel commodities of this time period. If you had not only tea, but a tea set, it marked you as kind of a respectable member of American society. And so when the British tried to take away tea, it wasn't just like they were taking away anything. They were taking away the elite's respectability. Um, by the 19th century, by the 1820s, 1830s, the, the middling classes that are starting just a little bit starting to be called the middle class are figuring out that they can use these formulas of gentility, which I talk about as, first of all, this is, this is a formula available really just to white Protestants. Yeah. Um, and so what you have to do is you have to sort of come up with a way to present yourself to the outside world. And uh, that presentation is a mix of kind of upstanding Protestant morality with kind of tasteful, limited, restrained, commercial um, consumer culture. And so you have to be able to navigate the marketplace and buy some things but not be this person who just goes crazy and doesn't know how to control themselves in the marketplace. And so I think the reason that the children's magazines become popular, one of the reasons that the children's magazines become popular in the 1820s and 1830s is that you've got this situation where these families are moving into cities. They're leaving behind their sort of traditional support systems with extended families and clergy and, and close-knit communities. And the parents, and these are, you know, like I said, they're relatively well-off families. They can't afford a luxury item like the children's magazine unless they're at least middling classes. Um, but they have to figure out a way to train their children 
how to prosper in a world that's rapidly not only becoming more urban, but also more market oriented, where people are instead of sort of doing subsistence farming and doing local trading in the village, they're producing goods that they're then going to take to the marketplace. And who am I going to sell my goods to? And who who's going to who am I going to trust? Who's going to not rip me off? And children have to learn how to survive in this marketplace. And so they turn to these magazines as a vehicle for helping children to build at first moral strategies for navigating in this terrain, but increasingly as we get to the Civil War and afterwards, also ways to, to actually let these kids go into the marketplace and um, do it in a way that's going to be respectable well, where they're not going to lose their reputation. The great fear that you see right around the Civil War is that young women are going to get into the marketplace and they're going to get caught up in fashion and they're going to start buying stuff and they're not going to know who to trust and they're going to find a bad suitor who's going to be some kind of a con man and they think he's an aristocrat but he's actually like some some wanderer and their lives are going to be ruined and with the boys it's a fear that they're going to go out and get um, corrupted by unprincipled employers or unprincipled peers or from a music man perspective pool tables right well I was going to yes, say yeah, yeah. yeah gambling yeah, 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 or yeah. drinking right. or you know and there's all these stories about boys who end up getting boys from prosperous families who end up getting in going to jail or getting hanged for crimes they commit because they didn't know how to navigate and they end up getting turning into drunkards or gamblers or embezzlers and later on they start reading dime novels which supposedly right. does the same thing um, and so these magazines emerge as a way to sort of train the kids on how to enter this world safely and successfully. Where you're listening to KZSU FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. Uh, for those of you that listen to KZSU regularly, you know that KZSU is a nonprofit, non commercial radio station at Stanford University that requires donations from listeners like you to continue its diverse programming. You have a couple of ways to make a donation to KZSU. You could email our underwriting department at underwriting at kzsu.stanford.edu or go to the website and click on donate. Uh, regardless, uh, do keep listening to KZSU and to the show. You know, Paul, I'm glad you mentioned right there before that very quick break uh, the messaging that was going on. And of course, messaging uh, in the context of marketing is, is a well-understood concept. And we have, of course, and which I do want to ask you about, we have regulations today that would prevent some of the activities that you describe in these magazines from recurring, right? There are laws, although they're not very effective, uh, to prevent marketing directly to children mm -hmm. at a certain age. There is a temporal aspect of childhood that I want to talk to you about because you interestingly point out that the, the length of childhood begins to expand uh, over the course of this period or at least change uh, to the extent that uh, we are concerned about marketing. But with regard to this theme of, for lack of a better phrase, uh, control, right, or, mm -hmm. or uh, acclimation to a particular order while mm -hmm. the middle class is emerging, I was struck, as I always am, when I, when I take a look at nursery rhymes and I'm mm -hmm. writing written for children, particularly in the 19th century, and you pointed out uh, how terrifying, mm -hmm. as is the word you used, uh, uh, this language was. I, I just want to quote uh, for the listeners, I have an idea of some of this content. Uh, you you have, uh, for example, 
the on page 30 of the book. And again, this is the only thing, this is something I can do because I know you're holding the book, although I'm not going to ask you this question at that level of detail. But on page 30 of the book, uh, you have a quotation uh, from a 1730, 1715, excuse me, uh, 7 to 1730 uh, verse that was then reproduced in some of these magazines. And, and just for the benefit of the listeners, uh, this, this idea of making sure that children continue to obey authority despite these emerging opportunities is a fascinating one. Here is um, a rhyme that you quote uh, in the book uh, to give you an idea of it. So uh, for children, uh, quote, Have you not heard what dreadful plagues are threatened by the Lord to him that breaks his father's laws or mocks his mother's word? So far, okay, well, what are those punishments? What heavy guilt lies upon him lies, the quote continues, how cursed is his name. The raven shall pick out his eyes and eagles eat the same. Now, you know, we both have children that are elementary school age. If our children read that, uh, I think both of us as fathers would say, where did you find that? And now let's sit down. First, I want to figure out how you got access to that language, and then we can talk through what it means. Um, but this kind of language, this kind of verse, of course, extended well into the 20th century. And hearsay culture listeners, many know the stories that Larry Lessig uh, has told about the history of Mickey Mouse coming from Brothers Grimm Tales, which mm-hmm. were also very violent uh, and had other issues. Um, how much of the content that these magazines were putting out were reproductions of these 18th century now, right, 17th century perhaps verse, how much of it was new? How much of what was being created by these content producers was moving the ball in the direction of control versus, or direction of, of control despite mobility versus an attempt to maintain order as it always was? That's a really interesting question. And, um, it not only goes forward, it also goes back. In mm. fact, I start the book, not the book, but the first chapter um, with a, a quote from the either, the, I think, the second issue of The Use Companion that is modeled on a story from a book called A Token for Children that was written by the Reverend James Janeway um, in the 1670s. And... Um, that is kind the scene I think in, in Anglo-American culture is one of the first books uh, focused directly um, or, or not marketed to children in the sense that they thought children would buy it, but but written for children. Mm-hmm. And Janeway focuses on conversion experiences because he's a I think he's a Calvinist. He's certainly an Orthodox Protestant, which means he believes that children are born damned. Um, and, and that children, um, if not, if they don't have a kind of conversion experience, what we now call being born again, that if they die young without that experience, that they're going to go to hell eternally. Um, and so there's a focus on the need to, to get children converted as soon as possible. Uh, and the Puritans, uh, the Calvinists in New England had this, this same idea, which is why the token for children becomes really popular in, in Calvinist New England in the, the 1600s, the uh, 1700s, sorry, after it's published. Um, but he focuses on the conversion experience. And I think it's 13 conversion experiences showing how children 
come to, to accept God as their Savior. And what he does is really focus on the, the gruesome details of how hard the conversion experience is. And, you know, the, the children are, are screaming and, and in agony and people can hear them walking down the streets, the, the, the pain that the children are going through as they're, they're struggling in this, this battle caught between the devil and, and God. Um, and, and so that's this, there's this sort of long tradition of fire and brimstone theology that, that poems like the Isaac Watts one that you quoted come from. Um, and the children's magazines of the 1820s borrowed from that but they also change it. Because one of the things that I found really quickly is that parents in 1820s Boston, which is where this initial wave of children's magazines comes out, they're not gonna buy magazines that are gonna frighten their children that much. Mm. They want, they're okay with this focus on conversion experiences. They're okay with this focus on preparing children for divine judgment but they don't want the nasty details. Mm -hmm. So they want some of the fire and brimstone taken out. Um, and, and the original editor, Nathaniel Willis, has some pretty scary stuff in the initial issues. And I couldn't find any like letters to the editor or any private correspondence, anything that said, you know, don't do that. But it's very clear if you read the, the magazine week by week that something changed because he stopped doing it. He stopped with the, the scary details and he still focused on children dying. And there's a ton of kids who um, die over and over. In fact, as I was doing my, my note taking on these magazines, I had a shorthand ADK was another dead kid that just was like, you know, this magazine would, would have these, mag these kids dying. And here's the model for how a good child dies. Here's a model for how a bad child dies. But they take out the... We think that's scary, but compared to the 18th century and 17th century stuff that gives the gruesome details, you don't see that. And what's interesting about the culture that these magazines come out of in 1820s Boston is that that's one strain, and I identify that as kind of the Orthodox Calvinist strain. Um, and then there's another strain in Boston that comes out of Unitarian culture, which is a much more liberal Protestant culture which starts with the idea not that children are born damned, that children are born innocent and that they have capabilities that if we cultivate them correctly um, will allow them to prosper. And they don't need to have this conversion experience and they don't need to be scared straight, basically, right. in 20, 20th or 21st century parlance. And so how is this tension dealt with? Because you've got, right, a simultaneous effort to to be clear, right, and correct me if I'm wrong, these were intended to be profit making businesses, right? These aren't these these this isn't you know these aren't public magazines, right? So these there's effort not only to make generate revenue by virtue of the magazine, but then also to the extent that you're dealing with advertising, right? Generate revenue for third parties, right? At the same time, right, offering content which Right, certainly what I quoted, right, does not sound like even by 1830 standards, right, forward thinking, right, uh, concerns about the role of children or the ability of children to have free will and so forth. So where, how is this tension handled? Because, right, you, you do, and, and maybe this is the time to kind of tie this together, 
one of the threads that runs through the book, which I found fascinating, was sensationalism. Mm -hmm. Now, we think about sensationalism today, I think, as a somewhat new phenomenon, although I think we can go back quite a bit, right? But we think about sensationalism in the context of marketing, right? Whether it's reality TV or outrageous claims in advertising as something new, but we could go back to the War of the Worlds and on back to see sensationalism, yeah, going all the way back, and you're gesturing to go even further. So, so let's let's talk about that, and perhaps that that helps us kind of crystallize this tension between mobility on one hand and maintaining a market and maintaining right these these uh, strata of of society, which of course I think are reflected. Uh, perhaps more than anywhere else in the country in Boston, right? Mm-hmm. And in places where you've got those cultures. Tell us about sensationalism. And you don't have to do it in a sensationalist <laughs> way, uh, although it's radio, so feel free to do that. Well, before I get there, though, let me, yeah. let me answer the first part of yeah, the question, which is, yeah. which is, you know, how does this sort of work in the 1820s? Because yeah. sensationalism is the second generation. You don't really mm-hmm. see that in these magazines until 1857. And is yes, it that we don't call it sensationalism or it's just not there? Well, I guess if you, you want to think about the dead kids as sensationalism, mm-hmm. then we okay. don't call it sensationalism. Okay. But there's a there's definitely a, a sea change that happens in 1857 in the companion mm-hmm. when the new editor takes over. I'll get to that in a minute. But but when we talk to the about the the original two magazines that I focus on most in the first third of the book, the, the initial use companion under Willis and the juvenile miscellany under Child. They're part of, and I really work hard to make sure this is clear in the book, they're part of a larger culture clash. I mean, this is almost, it's not quite, but it's almost like this, this culture clash that we're having now the, um, between um, liberal Protestants and Orthodox Protestants over who's going to control Boston mm. and uh, the educational institutions, the government institutions. Um, obviously, the Calvinists, the Orthodox folks had been in control really since the formation of the colony over 200 years earlier. But since the Revolutionary War, there's been this kind of gradual culture shift. And in 1803, it might be 1805, I don't have it off the top of my head, um, the liberal Protestants in something that becomes known as the Unitarian Controversy take control of the Board of Trustees at Harvard. And that's this kind of signal moment where you see, okay, liberal culture is starting to ascend. And this is the culture that's later going to become known as the Boston Brahmins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this becomes the culture of the elite. It becomes the culture of the wealthy, the highly educated. And, and so Lydia Child, when she makes her, her juvenile miscellany, she doesn't advert, there's no advertising in these magazines. This is in some ways sponsored by, by liberal elites. Mm-hmm. And then marketed to liberal elites, and make, she makes all her money off subscriptions. And she is not doing the scary stuff. She's doing quite the opposite. The forward thinking you're talking about mm-hmm. is happening in the miscellany, which is spectacularly successful until Lydia Child becomes converted to abolitionism and decides that part of what she can trust her children with, her child readers with is understanding how horrible slavery is and how she's going to use children as a vehicle to sort of end slavery. And we think of Boston as the hotbed of abolitionism, but it wasn't in the 1830s. And when she starts publishing anti-slavery and pro-abolition stories, her subscription base just collapses, and within a year she's out of a job, and six months later the magazine is closed. Um, So there is this, but there is this kind of culture clash between the elite 
liberal Protestants and the Orthodox Protestants that Willis is, is serving. They're really serving two different audiences. They're not really competing for the same audience. And what I found really interesting is that the Orthodox are really the working class by mm. the 1820s and 30s. That's shifted from they were the elite for a long time. But by the 1820s and 30s, that's not the case anymore. Um, and then if you want, so you've got this kind of, you know, the Orthodox um, liberal clash in the 1820s and 30s. The liberals are winning. The juvenile miscellany is doing much better than the companion. And then, you know, you can think of, of um, child almost as Icarus. She flies too high and she tries to go towards abolition and that causes her magazine to collapse. And um, Willis kind of motors along with a steady but not huge subscription base that's, that's gradually declining. By the 1850s, when he sells out, he's in his 70s, and, mm. and his magazine feels very old-fashioned. And, and the world that children are living in in Boston by 1857, when he sells his magazine, is very different from the world they were living in in the 1820s. There's, first of all, there's been a kind of a newspaper revolution. I think you had Michael Schutzen on at one I did. point. And, yeah. and Michael Schutzen writes really yeah. well about the newspaper revolution of the 1830s. Um, and um, so by 1850s, you've got all kinds of, of print culture and print materials available, not marketed to children, but for kids and especially older boys who have some kind of free range of, of wandering the city, they have access to these kind of sensational story papers. And this is where the sensationalism comes in with stories about pirates and criminals. And, and, and um, these are magazines that are kind of the, the predecessors, and this comes from the penny press that Schutzen talks about in the 1830s. These are kind of the predecessors to today's tabloids that gain audiences through, not through news, but, well, I guess through news, but through um, you know, drama and crime and, and horror um, that is not initially marketed to children. Um, and so there's this wave of story papers that kind of wrap themselves in the flag. And one of them is called like Flag of Our Union. And, and this is happening um, at a time when, yes, you know, we think of the 1850s as the road to the Civil War. And it was. And there's abolition tensions and, and those kinds of issues. But it's also a time you know, that's got tremendous tensions around immigration. And you've had this, this huge right. wave of, of Irish coming into Boston and New York and, and the anti-immigration. You've got the Know Nothing Party of the 1840s. And, and, and these sensational papers, in a lot of ways, come out of that anti-immigration culture. And they're kind of wrapping themselves in the American flag. I mean, this all sounds very familiar yeah, to us right, now, course, yeah. where um, they're talking about the dangers of non-white Protestants and what the, these people are bringing to the shores of America, whether they're Irish or German or um, Jewish, less Jewish at this point, but more, more mostly Catholic. Uh -huh. and, um, and so you get this sort of wave of, of sensational urban culture that, that functions on, on a bunch of different fronts in the 1840s and 50s and you know some of it is is uh anti-immigrant some of it's anti-black i mean this is where you get the original jim crow who is uh yeah. and, and dan rice who knew, calls himself jim crow and starts doing these sort of horrible blackface minstrelsy shows um that are you know this is another way of entertaining haha these people are not like us they're they're not white and protestant look at how stupid they are look at how dangerous they are look at how scary they are all the, sometimes a combination of all of the three. Um, 
the real revolution in the children's magazine industry happens in 1857 when Daniel Sharp Ford, or starts to happen when Ford takes over the Companion in 1857 and decides that he can take this form of sensationalism, which has previously been completely off limits unless you talk about the dead kids, which I consider kind of different. But, but these kinds of horror stories of non-Protestants that are you know, sort of pervasive in urban culture in Boston, New York, other places. Um, and he decides that he can do this in a modified way for kids. Now, he can't do the full-on um, terror that you see. You, know, you can't have you know, women going and being seduced by pirates and things like that. But the very first issue, one of the things that I found so fascinating, the last issue of... Um, Willis's tenure at the Companion. The front page story is about the prophet Samuel, and it's a kind of a it's a kind of a Bible tale, Bible allegory for the kids. And then the next week, on January first, eighteen fifty seven, Willis takes over the first issue. You see this picture of a wicker man, um, where they're in the Fiji Islands, yeah. and um, I've got a picture of this in the you, book that you do. Seen. It's, it's, and it's a it's a harrowing image. And so you've got this picture of Fiji Islanders who obviously are, are presented as non-Protestants, non-Christians. And they're pushing people inside the wicker man as they're preparing to light this thing on fire and do a human sacrifice. And you can see it's, it's, you know, it's not a clear picture quality-wise by our standards, but you can see people kind of prostrate on the ground because their loved ones are being shoved in and um, getting prepared to light on fire. And this is, I saw this and I just did this total double take, like how did this come up, uh, you know, how does this become the front page of the magazine? And you know, the story, which is this small little piece sort of buried further down the page, is about how um, this is what happens in countries that aren't civilized, i.e. Protestant, and this is why we need to go out and help these people to, to find God in Jesus. Mm. But that's the really small piece. The big piece, you know, the, what people would see on the newsstand as they're walking by is not the article. They'd see this big picture. And Ford's idea is that he can use this sensationalism to draw kids away from the, the other sensational culture that's surrounding them but isn't appropriate for their reading and use the sensationalism to teach them the kinds of lessons that he and their parents and their clergy are going to want them to hear. And it seems like there, and, and we're, we're, we're coming into, we're well into what I call the unfair portion of the show, Paul, where I started asking questions that you don't nearly have enough time okay. to answer as you previously have. Because what, as, as you were, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up this really shocking and upsetting uh, image that you reproduce in the book, because this to me seems like the analog to today's clickbait, um, yeah. and and this is kind of where I want to you know direct our discussion and our waning about five minutes or so, <laughs> um, and I recognize that, but I think we've you've already alluded to a, to a good amount of this, right? I think there's a lot that we can take in understanding marketing and children's access to information today, the kinds of concerns that we have as parents in 2016 about our children having unfiltered access to all kinds of information that they may not be ready to consume, and also, right, kernels that we can take with regard to how we 
uh, acculturate our children to a world where marketing is only advancing in terms of, of its uh, transcendence in everything we do, uh, and at the same time maintain the kinds of, I think, you know, certainly not the values of 1823, but the values that allow our children to be well-adjusted, active, positive members of a multicultural society. Um, with all of that, <laughs> and in four minutes, you're speaking to an audience of folks that certainly in historians are not a new thing on hearsay culture. Uh, and you mentioned uh, Michael Schutzen, who was on recently, but we've had historians on hearsay culture from the beginning. Uh, if you're talking to today's technology policymaker, thinking about how, if there are regulations of marketing to children, or really perhaps you could also think about it in terms of how we can think about children as consumers today. What would you want those people to take from your history in four minutes? Okay. Well, first of all, I think I, I didn't really write this for those kinds of policy. I, I understand. No, no, right. but, yeah. but the reason I want to say that is I kind of, the, the thing that really motivated me. And you're me a historian. Right. So, right. So it's a different thing. But I, but I didn't write it. I mean, I did write it for academics, but I also, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that this book is going to reach more than just academics. Right. I want it to go to parents like you and me of, mm -hmm. of elementary school kids because one of the and things. And that's that, why I had you on the show today. Right. And one of the things that I, presumed as I was getting into this research. And one of the things that I think is sort of the, been the dominant uh, message of people who've written about consumer culture for kids before, first of all, is that it really started in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And I think pretty clearly these magazines show that that's wrong. But second of all, that it was generated, you know, we should blame this and historians don't usually blame or praise, but, mm -hmm. but the, the underlying tone is we should blame this on corporate America. Mm -hmm. That this is all corporate American manipulation of our kids. Mm -hmm. Now, that's certainly happening. And I don't you know, it'd be naive to think that it's not. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I found in this book is that the original driving force for commercializing childhood doesn't come from corporate America. It mostly comes from the parents mm -hmm. who are looking for ways to get their kids acclimated to this new culture and they want to you know there's all sorts of battles that i talk about that obviously we don't have time to get into but but when we have battles early on between what the editors want to publish and what the parents want their kids to read the parents always win right. so if the editors go too far afield from what the parents want they either go out of business like child does or they have to sort of curve back like ford does a couple times the customer's um, always right yeah, and so one of the things that I wanted to focus on for parents is sometimes I think we forget that we have this control. And so I, I think that it's important to recognize that if we really want to blame, maybe we blame ourselves or blame our great, 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 whatever grandparents, um, because the impetus for commercializing childhood really came more from parents than it did initially from corporations. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I, I, I want to talk about quickly, you talked about the multicultural society. And one of the things about these 19th century books, and, and you talked about the values of 19th century, is that they're, they're overwhelmingly white and Protestant. Right. And what this does is it sets up not only the children's magazine industry, but the, the, you know, any kind of marketing for children for much of the, the 19th and 20th century just is set up as, as white and Protestant as normal. 
and anybody who tries to sort of do something from the outside, there are, you know, there are African American children's magazines, there are Catholic children's magazines, there are there's a Quaker anti-abolitionist children's magazine, but they don't get nearly the audience that the mainstream white Protestant ones do. And I, I think it's important for the listeners to know that that sets up a kind of a systemic pattern that I think we're still dealing with. I mean, as I, I'm not a children's book writer, my sister-in-law actually is, but, but I'm sort of trying to immerse myself in the world of, of current issues of kid lit and children's lit. And you know, one of the big issues right now is, is this program, we need more diverse books. Uh-huh. We, need, we need diverse books as a hashtag. And this idea that, that children's books and children's consumer culture is still not so much Protestant anymore, but still certainly overwhelmingly white, and we're still kind of struggling to find a way to tap into these other cultures. So there's been this big controversy over the last year or so about these two books that came out, uh, children's books about slaves. Um, and one is called A Fine Dessert, and the other one is called something like A Cake for General Washington. And tell me if I'm running out of time here. But Well, yeah, um, we have about 30 seconds. <laughs> okay, so, so there's been this big controversy about how these are books that show sort of smiling, happy slaves. Um, And there's even a hashtag, I think, called slavery with a smile. And and we're still struggling to sort of pull ourselves out of this white, um, that white is normal. And um, so I think that by pointing out the, the normality of whiteness in these 19th century magazines, I hope that sort of takes them out of the realm of, I don't know about the normal, but at least sort of get us wrapping our brains around how we need to do something different in the 21st century. And wow, that's the short version. That is the short <laughs> version. No, you know, I, I'll tell you, we, we, covered, we, we covered a lot of ground today because I, I think the history is not well known at all, which is why this book is a wonderful contribution to, I think, the community that uh, listens to hearsay culture regularly. But with that, though, um, I do want to thank you, Professor Paul Ringel of High Point University, author of the book Commercializing Childhood, Children's Magazines, Urban Gentility, and the Ideal of the Child Consumer in the United States, 1823 to 1918. Paul, we didn't get a chance to spend any time on your current projects. I know you're focusing on baseball history, and I I can certainly say this comfortably, uh, that unless you listen to this interview and decide that uh, hearsay culture shed you in a bad light, which I don't (laughs) think it did, um, I will uh, invite you back on the show. But more importantly for today, thank you. Uh, for joining us today on Hearsay Culture uh, to discuss what I think at first blush looks like a stretch for technology uh, and intellectual property law thinkers and policymakers and in fact is very much in our wheelhouse. Thank you today. Thanks for having me. So we are almost done with the Hearsay Culture schedule for this quarter. Our last guest for the quarter is Professor Neil Natanel of UCLA, author of the book. See, Paul, you're going to like this. Another history, except a little bit different. From Maimonides to Microsoft, the Jewish <laughs> law of copyright since the birth of print. So he's, Professor Natal is going way, way back. Uh, but not, you know, a couple hundred years maybe, you know, maybe 300 years <laughs> earlier than you. Um, 
Hearsay Culture is on KZSU-FM Stanford. You always have a number of ways to listen to the show this quarter, 2 p.m. Pacific time on KZSU at kzsulive.stanford.edu or by going to the iTunes page for the Center for Internet Society to hearsayculture.com. And now, most recently, you can find Hearsay Culture in the TuneIn uh, podcast app. As always, I welcome your comments, suggestions, and feedback by going to the comment uh, and contact page at hearsayculture.com or by emailing me at Dave at HearsayCulture.com. Thank you for joining me today on KZSU. Please stay tuned for more diverse programming and have a great day.